Hey everyone, this is Dr. Chowan, your host for Women Wide for Wellness Podcast. Today's podcast is something that I would say is a very fascinating story, to say the least. We're talking to Kate McGoy Smith. And who is uh, Kate? She's actually, she's got a great background. She's a registered nurse. She also has worked as a social worker with a 25 years experience as a family mediator. Now, her story is extremely compelling. So she is someone who struggled with a terminal condition called primary pulmonary hypertension or idiopathic pulmonary hypertension, which essentially is a death sentence in today's internal medicine. And uh, what this conversation is going to be about is her journey of getting this diagnosis, the diagnosis getting treated with the available medication, which actually caused blindness and how she overcame both, both a terminal illness as well as her blindness. It is absolutely fascinating. I don't think you should miss this. And again, like with every other podcast, I ask you to come into it with an open mind so you can actually love. We love bringing this to you. So please make sure you go to our YouTube channel, you subscribe, and you share this conversation with anyone else whom you believe will be helped by it. Once again, anything that you hear in these podcasts, should not be construed as medical advice, but it is information that helps you understand that you have options. And that's what you want to take these podcasts to be, is me bringing to you that there's a different option than just taking medications, though medications have a place in disease management. So, number one, listen to the conversation. Number two, share it. Number three, make sure you subscribe to our YouTube channel and like our podcast on iTunes. Please leave a review if you really love listening to the content. It will help a small practice like ours to continue to provide this content. Once again, love you all. Listen to this and we'll connect with you someday. Hi everyone, welcome to Women Wide for Wellness. I'm your host, Dr. Nisha Chalam. Today I have a very unique guest. I know sometimes I say that about a lot of our guests, but this is really very unique and you will be floored by her story. Kate is, a pa is passionate about helping others. She's actually Kate McGoy Smith. I wanted to make sure I pronounce that full name correctly. And she's passionate about helping uh, others understand evidence-based nutritional value of adhering to a low-fat, whole plant-based diet for better health. And there's a huge story behind that statement. And we're going to delve a little deep into that in this conversation. So those of you who want to just turn it off saying, okay, I'm not going to, I'm, I'm, I'm all keto or I'm paleo. I don't want to listen to this. I would just say, just pause for a moment open your mind to this conversation. It may not be the right track for everyone, but it was for her. And I think what captured my interest about Kate's story is the disease process. Being a traditionally trained physician, primary pulmonary hypertension is not curable. I've been taught that it's not something that you reverse. 
and she's done something remarkable and I think we all should be yours for this particular conversation. So welcome, Kate. Uh, thank thank you. you so much for actually coming on our podcast. I think you have a very valuable story that's going to change somebody's life. So mm -hmm. give us a little introduction. I know I didn't do uh, justice to your introduction because you have a very yeah. uh, interesting background. Let us uh, know a little more about you and we'll delve into your story. Yeah, well, I after I left, I had worked as a nurse's aide during my high school years. And then <laughs> I became a pharmacy technician in the hospital for about a year, then entered nursing. And I became a, I worked in the at the bedside in the hospital, as well as the operating room and in, in the community. And then I realized that I wanted to, I was working in Houston, Texas, and I was being groomed to be head of neurosurgery for the nurses. And I realized I didn't think I wanted to do that till I was 65. It's very demanding work. It's 12 hour surgery and et cetera, et cetera. And so I realized that I really loved the patient connection. Mm -hmm. And that's what led me to do a, a BA and then a two year master's in clinical social work. Um, here I'm in, in Calgary, Alberta, Canada, but my training was my undergrad was at University of Waterloo and then at Wilfrid Laurier University. And I'm also a trained family mediator. Wow. So I understand the idea of the divided table, but my mediation was around actually helping people with parenting plans when they uncouple, but they will be parents forever. So, um, so I've really enjoyed it. I've taught at uh, five different universities. And uh, so I've always had teaching in my background as well. And uh, I have published papers uh, in the past as well. And I've been a columnist. So I've done a variety of things. I have, I'm a mother of three um, kids. And um, so they're all off. They finished just like some of them have just finished university and they're developing their careers and, and everything like that. Um, and uh, unfortunately though, when they were younger, I was diagnosed with something I was, my job was to be a clinical supervisor and manager of a family school liaison program. It's a free on-site counseling program for children from kindergarten to grade 12 in the rural setting. And so I started it with blank paper and six and a half years later, I was supervising 12 counselors and 13 school sites. So I was very busy. Um, I also did um, usually a, uh, every few weeks, um, a, a relation, I was a relationship expert for global television, their Saturday morning show. I, I dropped the expert, but that's what they put it on for me. But just helping people communicate better and have better relationship is really important to me. Mm -hmm. And so, um, you know, what happened was I was diagnosed, I noticed that I was feeling very fatigued, my leg, lower legs and abdomen were swelling. Um, I was finding I was short of breath. I had a persistent cough for about a year and I kept thinking, I guess I should go check it out. I think like many moms, you put everything else, that kind of stuff, your own health on the back burner and you just push yourself through it and think, you know, it'll be better once, because I followed a school year, it'd be better once the summer comes and I'll be fine. But it took about a year of diagnosis for them to discover um, that I, you know, had um, severe right-sided heart failure that was due to an ultrasound. And then they 
went on for further testing and I was diagnosed with something called idiopathic. So even the idiots don't know what causes it or cures it. That's my phrase of it. Uh, pulmonary arterial hypertension. And that's localized high blood pressure in the pulmonary arteries of the lungs. It's very rare. It only affects two to four in a million. And it's a progressive disease with no cause and no cure. And uh, so most people, by the time they're diagnosed, it takes usually about two years. Mine was fortunate at nine months. Um, they're already in palliative care. Mm -hmm. yeah. um, their bodies just can't survive it. And for women, let's say, of, who could be of childbearing ages, they don't recommend pregnancy because, of course, that will mean death for the mother for sure. And then ultimately the child because it'll be too much blood flow and their heart can't t tolerate it. Because, um, for example, I had severe right-sided heart failure. So what I was happening is I wasn't getting enough oxygenated blood because uh, it was really hard to get over the hump of the, uh, you know, into the heart chambers from being oxygenated in the lungs. And so that was a, so within that diagnosis, within about three or four months, I became legally blind as well. Uh, because of a lack of oxygen in my eyes. And then at the same time, it was kind of like, you know, the, the car that's run its course and everything falls apart. I also had been diagnosed with type 2 diabetes. So I had diabetic retinopathy. So that combination. And then unfortunately, when I went to my retinologist, he said, uh, I said, what can I do? And he said, you know, it's actually between choices between your eyes and your lungs. What do you want to do? And believe it or not, that was What does that a, mean? I mean, he was going to was. It, it's because if I got off the drug, like, you know, if I would, the, the drugs that I, they put you on are very high toxic experimental drugs f because they're trying everything to slow the progression of the pulmonary arterial hypertension. And it, in other words, I could either choose to stay on the drugs for my lung's sake, but it would harm my eyes. Okay, got it. So um, this is, that's a very important point. Yes. A few things here. For a few things. Uh, do you remember the blood pressure in your lungs at that time? They never shared that with me. They oh, just wow. said it was high. Yeah. Uh, okay. My doctor was not into numbers that way. I think he didn't want people to be panicked or be like, okay, next time. I've had like six heart, right heart casts. Yeah. Um, and uh, my pressure has gone down, but I've never gotten the exact results. Numbers. I would yeah. love to know that because I think yeah. that's that's important because most people who are very healthy were like under 25, right? You yes, know, mine was over that. But I, I was going to say, I think uh, if I looked at our paper, my husband was a co-writer on it. We published a paper in 2000, it came out September of 2019 in um, the International Journal for Disease Reversal mm -hmm. and Prevention. And yeah. it's a dedicated journal now that's been well established to be able to present case studies and and others and, and larger studies to show the value and validity uh, and reliability of eating a whole plant-based diet got it and a whole plant-based diet is uh, cooking with no oils or baking with no oils or having it in salad dressings and in addition to that eating a plate of um, whole grains, vegetables, legumes, and fruit. So yes. that's basically, you know, with maybe sparingly use of nuts or avocados. Those are, well, they're high nutrients. They're very high fat. So this True. is a not a non-fat diet, but a very low-fat diet. 
So just um, to get back to the, I, mm-hmm. I, the reason I want to I wanted to be a little instructional to to the people who listen. Sure, absolutely. So the, yeah, the blood pressure in the lung is twenty five and under. Yes. And uh, just to compare it to the blood pressure in the body, like when the heart is pumping forward, which we think of as 125 by 75 or 120 by 75 and lower. So you can see sometimes when somebody has pulmonary hypertension, it goes as high as 80, 90. And that's a humongous amount of um, effort for the heart, right side of the heart that is pushing blood into the lung. And it can cause shortness of breath. The person will need oxygen long term. Mm -hmm. So were you on oxygen at that time? Yes, I ended up having to be on oxygen and and losing my sight. So I was quite a a sight because I carried a tank on my back with a nasal cannula mustache and I had my uh, white cane yeah, um, and sunglasses. Yeah. The other part of it is it's not the pulmonary hypertension that took your sight. It was the treatment of the pulmonary hypertension. It was. It, that's at least what I was told by my retinologist who he, because it was, I was get, having a lack of oxygen in my eyes and, but the drugs were also, he felt, and that's why he said, do you want to choose your lungs or your eyes? And so to me, it wasn't a hard decision because I didn't need to see my kids. I did need to hug them and be around to do that. So it was like almost instantly I went, I'm choosing to have my lungs. You know, yeah, Basically, you chose life over um, yes. blindness. Yes. Yes. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So, um, you know, that was a very difficult phase of my life because, of course, it felt like my whiteboard had been already busy, but it was slowly being wiped out. And this wiped it felt like it wiped it completely out, because I didn't know how to function. Um, and it felt like a great loss. Because, of course, I, I love reading, I love books, I love all of that kind of stuff. But I was able to give my library, my professional library to a domestic violence shelter staff, so that they would have a library books they couldn't afford. And um, I just had to sort of figure out what was the new me and my new identity. So can you tell me what your age was at that time? Um, I think I was just had turned, I mean, there was 49 or just 50 at the time. Wow. Okay. So, I mean, I still had a lot of years to earn money and finally, and you know what that's like, I'm sure many people do is like you finally, okay, the kids are kind of getting on their own and, you know, you can finally, okay, maybe we can have a more of a vacation or, you know, start living up life a little bit, you know, they still, there's university and all that kind of stuff, but, you know, they're helping to share that way. Um, For our kids, for example, they all had to, that we all paid for their first year of university and then they had to um, help cover the costs. And, you know, if they were living at home, there was no cost that way, but they had to cover their tuition. Mm. Um, that was really important for us that we had a shared commitment to their education. Um, And so, you know, I really thought, okay, finally, you know, I can, can, can enjoy that, but that didn't turn out to be the way it was. Um, So, yeah. So what happened was uh, we were, we had just, um, I just gone to a symposium with our, our, pulmonologist and he had talked about one thing they they don't know a lot about this disease um, because obviously no cause no cure and so it's a lot of experimental you feel a little bit like a 
science rap, rat, mm-hmm. you know, trying to, they're experimenting with this and that. Um, however, one thing he said is the one thing that they noticed is uh, the endothelium lining, which is lined on every blood vessel and artery of our bodies, everyone has this endothelium lining. It becomes much thicker, they don't know why, with pulmonary arterial hypertension. So um, I was like really fascinated with that because that's the first piece of information I could really find. There was only, I was given at the time of diagnosis, there's only one handbook in all of North America. And um, the nurse said, I think you guys, to my husband and I, I think you guys can handle this. I wouldn't give this to everybody. Because when we opened it, I, I have a tendency to be an index reader after going to school for so long. I want to go and have, like, what do I want to know about? And then I find it in the index and I start studying that because I'm more likely to retain it and, and learn that way. And uh, most of the people who are contributors had all died, unfortunately. So that was quite discouraging and, and alarming. And uh, But we slowly kind of got through the book. Um, and then what was interesting is I heard about one night we have what would be equivalent to, I guess you're Johnny Carson or Stephen Colbert now and that kind of thing. A gentleman came on called, and his name is George Stropanopoulos. And he was a host and he did, the, uh, did interviews in the evening. And he was a CBC host, which is our major broadcast channel. Mm-hmm. And he came on one night and before he started to talk and, you know, and this was to me serendipitous, you know, whether God was acting <laughs> on my behalf, but I could not see the television. Like mm-hmm. I, even we, we finally got a big screen TV. We never had a big screen TV. We always had a really small TV. Yeah. Um, but we got that because of course I could not read anymore or anything. And I turned it on and normally I, I didn't turn it on in the evening but I turned it on he popped up and I could hear his voice. And he said, um, I watched the documentary Forks Over Knives. It changed my life. It might change yours. That's all I'm going to say. And I was so intrigued. I thought, what the heck is this Forks Over Knives? And I had been given, I had applied for and successfully been granted a um program an audio program on my computer and my whole intention was to write goodbye stories to my kids because I thought I'm not going to see them as teenagers or anything and I want them I want to be able to part some lessons to them so I got on there and I found out about Forks Over Knives and then I wrote to the producers and asked like when would it be shown in Canada or whatever I couldn't obviously they didn't have any screenings online or anything and then I finally got an answer back and it was coming to Calgary, but it was coming in a off kind of arty kind of culture movie house. It wasn't mm. the regular movie houses. And unfortunately, it t- took two flights of stairs to climb up. So for me and my condition, you can imagine blind on oxygen with a tank. That was like climbing Mount Everest. Mm. But we ended up going to the movie and I saw what I could see, but I heard all of it. And... Um, we ended up going back two more times, we taking each of our kids, because I was really moved by Dr. Caldwell Esselstyn. Of, um, he does the Esselstyn program at the Cleveland Clinic on Prevent and Reverse Heart Disease using a whole plant-based diet. And what was amazing is he said, 
he talked all about the endothelium cells. And he said, so he said on the normal standard American diet, or what some people refer to as a sad diet, and that would be like mostly meat, and maybe the sides would be some vegetables and some potatoes. But, you know, apparently ketchup is the number one vegetable in North America. Yep. So, you know, it's, it's not a lot, of, a lot of color on our plates. Um, but he said, you know, this causes a thickening of the endothelial cells and the oil causes little cuts in the endothelium, which can lead to a buildup of plaque as it's coming through can get clogged and in there and kind of form a, a thin covering over to cover up kind of like this injury. And so I went, oh my gosh. And then I just remembered hearing about the endothelium and I all of a sudden I went, so if I'm eating that kind of diet, and I was kind of a flexitarian at that point, and if I'm eating that diet, because I would occasionally have maybe chicken, but normally I would be vegetarian, which mm -hmm. was had cheese and dairy. Right. Yeah, if I'm eating that kind of diet, and then on top of that, I already have a thickening of the endothelium with my um, pulmonary arterial hypertension, I'm going to be in big trouble. And no like, and I can remember I had a conversation, I went into a diabetic clinic, and the nurse said to me, as we were talking, she goes, well, have the doctors told you how you will die? And I was like, like, I wasn't expecting that I was just going in. For it. <laughs> and I said, No. And she goes, Well, you know, it won't be from the pulmonary arterial hypertension, it'll be your heart will just give out. And, you know, it might not be a very pleasant death. And I thought, okay, thanks. Like, you know, some information I did not solicit. And, I, you know, I was like alarmed. I'd so alarmed that I ended up calling my pulmonologist. And he said, he was really furious. He said, she had no right to talk to you like that at all. Like, um, so you start to wonder how much doctors and maybe trying to so-called protect you don't actually are protecting themselves as well. Mm -hmm. I certainly saw that as a nurse. There were some doctors that hated to pronounce that someone had died. Like, you know, and we're there waiting and saying, we need to let the family know we need to take care of this, this person and their body. And we wouldn't, you know, the doctor would be take hours and hours because it was really hard to admit that yeah. defeat, in other words, because they're human too. They feel the, those losses as well. So I just was like, wow. Like, and so it just putting those two pieces together, um, my husband and I, like we started on our own to try to do it. It was hard. So I ended up going down. Um, my son um, tried to raise some money for us. So we went down to the McDougal Center. He had a five-day program. We couldn't afford the 10-day. And we went down there and that was really, really helpful. That really got us going because he had his whole like he included his training and meals for the five days right. and um, the training involved theoretical knowledge, like so that you understood the why. And then he also included the how, because he had people come in and demonstrate some recipes. And then the other how was really valuable was going to eat the food because he, he set it up in terms of the buffet was by calorie density. So you start it with soup, salad, and then some main dishes like that would maybe contain grains or legumes. And then the dessert was way over across the other room. So the focus was like, go to the buffet as many times and then see if you want to go to dessert. And that was really helpful um, to have that experience of those whys and hows. Um, 
rather than just leap in and not know, understand fully the why to motivate myself and the how to be so clumsy about it. I will say, though, if someone said to me, would you like to make a meal for four or would you like to go give a university lecture? I'd be right on like, I'll do the lecture. That's easy. Like I have to pull the food together. Like, you know, I got, I got like a lot of other people. I did know how to do some cooking, but like those boxes were so tempting just to open and put in the microwave or in the oven. Right. Uh, Just because of time convenience and you figure, well, they must know what they're doing. Like it's supposed, it says on the outside, it's low fat or it's this and that and all the, yeah, healthy (laughs) choice. That's right. And so you sort of pay for that convenience and and mindless kind of eating in a way. So Um, I want to stop you right there for another important point. You have this, Um, I mean, I know you were given a book, I'm assuming by a doctor about pulmonary hypertension. I was. And then you went to this movie, Forks Over Knives, you saw it two, three times. And then you tried to get things going on your own and Mm -hmm. found it difficult. And so you went to get some practical help. Just so that people understand, because we live in a world of wealth of information today. I mean, compared to what it was a few years ago, when you had the struggle. Yes, it's like, unbelievable amount of information. And yet we are sicker than ever. Yeah. And the the disconnect between information, and why you're not well, is because that bridge needs to be there, how to for you, get you from where you are to get you to the point where what you do is going to help you. And a big point that you brought out is cooking food is very intimidating. I mean, it Mm -hmm. is very like we're so busy doing stuff and I have never understood what it is because in the past human beings, the only job they had was to find food, right? Mm -hmm. Now we have so many other things that food has become like an afterthought. It's a mindless, um, mindless. I mean, we're constantly eating, but we are mindlessly eating and it's no longer nourishing our health, but is feeding our disease. Mm-hmm. And we're chalking it up to stress, or we're chalking it up to genetics. So for you, that change of watching someone else, what did that actually do? And I like the way you said, you know, he connected you to the why. Mm-hmm. And a lot of times when you get connected to the why it sticks in your head. And yes. So when you see that, you have a connection and it's very difficult to go back to your old ways because now you have new knowledge. Just talk to us about what was the uh, change. First of all, the folks over knives opened a can. It did. What was the change? What was the change actually when you went through that? I think what happened is after forks over knives, one thing I, I left out and I forgot about, but it's really crucial is that I contacted Dr. Esselstyn's secretary. Mm-hmm. And he only will deal with people who have had heart problems. He doesn't mm-hmm. deal with anybody else with other diseases. So since I had severe right-sided heart failure, I wrote. And two days later, the, she said, Dr. Esselstyn wants to talk to you. And then I was so thrilled. I felt like someone had said Mother Teresa or the Beatles <laughs> or the Pope or online. I mean, you know, it was very, very exciting. I was like screaming, you know. <laughs> And I ended up talking to him and and he's very much like a surgeon having worked in the operating room myself. It's like, this is what you need to do. Yeah. And he goes, you have a very complex case. You got to get rid of the diabetes. 
And then like, you know, just like, okay, let me do that. And Take it out, delete. Get, got, yeah, got rid of the diabetes and you got to eat greens six times a day, uh, fistful of greens six times a day. And um, that'll help your increase your nitric oxide, which is, that was something discovered in the 1980s uh, and won a Nobel Prize for. And the idea is that when we ingest nitrates, which are all these greens, it forms nitric oxide, which is this gas. And this gas is a vasodilator and constrictor. And so it helps dilate things, which I knew, if you think about it, I was getting narrower and narrower and narrower. So I needed something that would open it up. Yeah. So because blood um, does two really obsessional things. It, it brings nutrients to other parts of our body and oxygen. So I needed both. And so, and so I started trying to do that. And again, you know, clumsily, but doing it as, as best I could. And that's when I went to the McDougall program and it just helped cement that. But the other thing that, one thing that McDougall said, or sorry, Dester Esselstyn said of the why that really helped me for my particular situation is because there's no cause or no cure, the only possible cure, and it's still rather remote, is a lung transplant. Mm -hmm. And the problem with the lung transplant is, first of all, I'm a woman. I'm only, I'm five foot five and a half. So my chest isn't as big as a man's chest for most average men. So whether, if I got a donor that had, um, it was a man's donor, my, the lungs may not be able to fit in my body. They might be too big. So there's a problem there. The other thing is it's 12 and a half hour surgery. It's probably the most extensive of all. It is the most extensive of all the transplant surgeries and more can go wrong than can go right. Right. And so I thought that's obviously a last resort and you don't also the odds, there's not that many um, it's not like a kidney where someone can give a kidney or part of a liver. Um, you know, you, the person has to be deceased in order to be able to give you their lungs. Yeah. And so there's another odd against it, you know, and then I thought, and when he said, there's no morbidity to this diet, then I realized I'm not risking really anything. I have nothing to lose. If I put on my researcher hat and think of it this way, I'm not standing up, I'm not going to be a lifer, anything, I'm just going to go in, just like a researcher, like a curious person and say, let's see what happens if I do this for 30 days, or 90 days, or 120 days, let's see what happens. Now, McDougall, another life changing thing is he said, uh, I went there this, the beginning of De December 1st of 2012. And I was so glad that it was in December. And I'll tell you why, because I thought, that's the toughest month of all in the whole year yeah. for anybody who eats. Mm -hmm. Most of us eat. And because everything's like a free card, like, you know, get out of jail. Like, yeah, have that beer, have those nuts, have that candy, that chocolate. After all, that's the, isn't that friendly? Like, isn't that, you know, accommodate everybody what they want you to eat because, after all, they love you and you love them. So you want to show because food is not just about nourishment. It's about culture. It's about comfort. It's about traditions. It's about identity in a family. If you said to any family, oh, what are you going to eat on December 25th? Somebody would have some idea, no matter if you're a Christian or non-Christian, like you would have some idea probably what you would eat during a particular holiday season. 
because that's just part of your family story. Um, so I realized if I could get through December, man, the other holidays are easy breezy. And so I was really glad to tackle the worst first. And uh, so that became, you know, and knowing that there was no morbidity, that I wasn't actually causing myself to get further ill because I had two, my North Star, when I got diagnosed and my kids were really young, um, is I thought to myself, one, I have an obligation to get as well as possible um, and do everything possible to get as well as possible. And the second was, I have to show my children that no matter what you're given in life, you have a responsibility to contribute to the, to the world. And I didn't know what that would look like. Uh, but I kept those two things in mind because I never wanted them to think, um, sorry, I never wanted them to think that I had given up and that I wasn't trying to fight to be with them for as long as possible. And the other thing is I wanted them to know that everybody has problems and they still have a responsibility to contribute to the world because that's the kind of citizenship I wanted from them as a growing into adulthood. And so I thought I have to role model that yes. and show them it's possible. I think that's a very profound message to everybody, right? Um, you have a problem. Number one, you have to understand the problem. Number two, there is a solution to that problem. Yeah. Is are you willing to go find it? Yes. And the other thing is, I think what really motivated me is I became when I once I became a patient, and I'll be honest, it was worse than having the diagnosis, having come from the nursing world. Right. Right. You know, oh, because tell me about it. Yes. Yeah. When, when I heard I was going to be a patient, like that was worse than you're going to die in yeah. a way, because I knew I'd have to be patient to be a patient. Like I would have to, you know, I'd be told dress, undress, do this, do that. And it would everybody, you know, I'd have to be really compliant or else I'd be seen as a problem. I had to, you know, it just went on. And like, I just thought my life will not be my own anymore. That's um, very sad. It's a very sad statement. And yeah. I don't think people realize that it's not just compliance. You, you're not being heard. That's the most important. Well, I think I had seen something that may really resonate with other people if they just sort of stop and think about it. I was listening to a documentary where a gentleman built a hospital. And one of the ways he sold the hospital, and it was a children's hospital he wanted to develop in the States is to his potential funders, he said, think about going into a place where your clothes are removed from you, you're given a uniform, you're given uh, a number, you know, you think of your wristband, um, you're told when to wake up, when to go to sleep, you're fed institutional food. And he said, hospitals are not very much different than prisons. Yep, they're and not. And yet you've done no crime. Mm-hmm. You know, other than this being sick. Other than yeah, being and, sick. and yeah. you know, and I would say for sure, I think people sometimes they want to blame themselves. And I'd say, don't blame yourself. Like, think about all the messages that surround us all the time. You should be able to have a Budweiser and, and be the life of the party uh, with no consequence about whether driving or not driving. You know, you should be able to eat McDonald's and uh, as a snack, that you should have a Big Mac as a snack and it's over a thousand calories when that's sometimes people's whole day 
worth of calories that they need. And it's not very, it's not high nutrition calories either. You know, like we're fed constantly all this stuff. We go to supermarkets. What do they put out? They put a lot of processed food out. It's, it's, it gives them a good shelf life, but it gives us a harmful life. You know, like we have all these messages surrounding us. It's amazing we get through that whole issue of and whole those multiple messages coming at us and can hear our own voice. And my experience of eating this way reminds me of when I first had kids as a new mother. There's always people who will advise you and tell you to do this, do that, do other, give you a dirty look, whatever it is. And you have to suddenly, and and there's tons of books out there, tons of all that stuff, but you have to stop and say, hold it. What kind of makes sense for me? What do I want in my life? And I got to put all that, push that aside and be able to just focus in because I think that people forget their own expertise of their situation. Am I a person that will make meals? Am I a person that maybe I'm the person who has to go to the grocery store and not only pick the salad box, but there are cut vegetables at the store. It's worth it to me to buy those and incorporate them in my raw salad. You know, it's knowing who you are and what you want to do with it and what you imagine for your, what your preferred future is. Like, do you want to see yourself? Do you want to retire into illness? Because the likelihood is you're going to, you know, it just, there's just so many people that unfortunately by 45 already have major heart disease and, um, you know, potential leading to prostate cancer and breast cancer. So it's, it's sort of like, what do I want? And then, you know, you try your very best and not beat yourself up, but we all have detours on our journey. I've certainly had detours and then you have to, you know, you get yourself back on track and you remind yourself what's important. When I see couples in my counseling, you know, when they come in and go, you know, I don't know if we're going to stay together or not. Well, that's actually not the most important thing. It's like, what am I going to get out of this time together? Because guess what? Whether I'm together as a couple or not, we're still going to have to learn how to communicate because maybe we have kids together. We're still going to have to be parents together. Sometimes that's the worst news I have to tell people is guess what? You are stuck with this person and they're stuck with you, you know, because you're going to be parents together and your kids are depending on you to show them how two adults get along in the world, whether you happen to be married or not. So it's a matter of what what decisions you're going to make and just to hear your own voice about what's really, who's important to you and what matters to you and let that be your guide. So basically get to your purpose. Like a yeah. lot of people, and this is, this is very important, Kate, a lot of folks just walk into that doctor-patient relationship, giving complete power to the doctor. Yeah. And it's like what they say is what I will do till something obviously fails or something that, you know, is blatantly wrong. Yeah. Sometimes, like, for instance, I'm giving a patient a choice of your life versus your sight is not a choice, in my opinion. I know you said a life because I want to be there for my kids, Mm -hmm. but really 
it is suffering. You're like, I'm giving you a treatment, do no harm, but I am harming you when I'm treating yeah. you. And you don't ask that question. You don't question the doctor. What else can I do? Because that's what they're trained for is to diagnose a disease connected to a drug. What you did was, like you said, it was serendipitous that you heard something you caught on because when you're desperate, you listen to a lot of things. You're looking for little hope everywhere. Most people are not desperate because they accept. They accept the journey of dying. And I've said this before several times, and I, I will repeat it till it clicks into people's head. Death is an event. Life mm -hmm. is a journey. When we make death a journey and we accept it that way, you go to the doctor without, that's from mindless eating to mindless treatment. That's what people do. And your story gets to the point of where you don't, you don't look like somebody who asked a lot of questions at that time, but something else opened up, like there was a hope that yeah, opened I think, up. Right? To be honest, in fairness to someone receiving it, yeah. I think for anybody, like I was probably, I was in a state of shock. Yeah. I mean, yeah, I was I not expecting this. I had not ever been diagnosed with high blood pressure or cholesterol or anything else. Like, you know, I was sort of going along. Yes, I was overweight, quite a bit overweight. Um, and yet no doctor ever said to me, uh, do you want to do something about that or whatever? Like, you know, we got you know sort of people like people get because, offended. Just remember that you know yeah, I've I've had patients I, I appreciate who get really offended. that. Yeah, no, I I yeah. appreciate that. However, I think the thing is the other thing I think people forget about is we have probably if we looked at society, um, we've knocked priests and ministers and everything. We've knocked cops. We we haven't so called knocked nurses yet, although Trump's doing a pretty good job on doctors and nurses right now. Yeah. <laughs> Usually we still hold doctors at quite a pinnacle, right? Not um, always. I would say that yeah. having, I, so I've been in this country in the United States from 93. Yes. I have seen that dwindle down. It had, yeah. And a lot of, for the wrong reasons, I would say. Now, yeah. A lot of people say, you know, my doctor doesn't know anything but put medicines. But here's how I want people to think. And I've said this also before. You don't go to your cardiologist and cuss your cardiologist out because he didn't fix your knee. You're yeah. very clear about my cardiologist is specialized in the heart. So when you go to a traditionally trained doctor who only an internist, I was only taught, put the symptoms together, diagnose the disease early, connect it to a drug and stall the progression of the disease. I've yes. said to my diabetics, this only gets worse, but we can buy you time before right. you become a full-fledged diabetic and die of complications. Yeah. I truly believed in it. I didn't question it because yeah. the clinician's knowledge is 25 years behind, and we don't realize that. Yeah, and well, really, and, yeah go ahead. Yeah, I was just going to say, my point is very similar to yours, and I think you make it quite eloquently, is that one of the challenges that I realized, it really hit me strongly, and I've certainly realized that in... Um, the kind of counseling work we've done, but it really hit me again, being reintroduced as a patient is doctors are looking like my doctor, my pulmonologist was only looking at how could he prolong my life. Right. He didn't look how this would affect my eyes, how this would affect my kidneys or how it affect my liver or my heart, all the drugs they put me on, all the, you know what I mean? All these experiments and everything. They just looked at, okay, if I can prolong her life, that's of too narrow a, a view, to be honest with you. But that's what they've taught, and, 
Right. That's what they're taught. No, we no, but we suffering. compartmentalize. Yes. And the problem is what people don't realize is a patient, our role is to look at the whole person and to ask those questions. And that that's not um, considered non-compliant. It's considered taking full responsibility and partnership for your health. It's like saying, I'll stay in the driver's seat and you can ride alongside me, but I'm still in the driver's seat. So how is this going to affect my kidneys or how is this going to affect my my um, heart and those kind of things? But they weren't looking at that. And I can forgive them for that, but I know that I had, that's what made me go, no one's really taking care of my whole being. Right. And that's why I got bought in also to the whole plant-based diet. Because I looked at T. Colin Campbell's kind of formula. And his formula, T. Colin Campbell has, is a professor emeritus of biochemistry at Cleve, uh, the, sorry, uh, in, in, what is it? Uh, Cornell University. And he's written over 350 peer-reviewed papers. That's really platinum level status. He's best known for the China Very best. And he's probably the world leading world yeah. whole plant-based expert. Right. Um, and he talks about a formula. 80% is food, 12% exercise, and the rest is genetics. So when someone says, well, diabetes is my family, heart disease is my family, yeah, most people's because it's the number one's killers, you know, number one and two kind of thing. So um, that doesn't have to be the way if you can do something different with food. And yes, I just picked up a magazine today, it was a free one in a health food store. And it was like, everything was supplement from front to back. And I thought, yeah, that's kind of convenient. You know, I'll just take a pill and magically, but that's magic thinking. When we know that we need to eat the fiber, we know we need to nourish our body, we need to have a sense, our brain needs to have a sense of fullness and satisfaction. So, and it helps stabilize our mood so we don't have these spikes and everything. Right. Um, so there's so much benefit to really that food can be such a powerful foundation and we're paying for it. So why not get the most out of every food dollar that we pay for? Yeah. No. Yeah. So tell us about how this evolved. So you started doing the plant based, you bought into I did. it. We're going to do it for 30 days. And right I actually, well, actually, McDougal challenged me okay. uh, because he said, when I went to his program, he said, like, guys, don't do it for 30 days. Mm -hmm. You got to do it enough that you'll see some difference. Mm -hmm. So what I decided to do since I started December 1st, April 8th was my birthday. And I thought, I'll get to April 8th, and then I can eat anything I want. Yeah. And for some reason, I would go to bed, and I'd start dreaming about banana splits. And I don't know why, because it wasn't something I regularly ever ate either. Yeah. And I was just like, that's what I'll have for my birthday. Like, I'd have a dream. like, what would I have for my birthday? I'm not yeah. a big chocolate <laughs> person or anything. And I thought, banana split, well, it has some fruit in it, you know. And yeah. I like ice cream. Most people do. And... Um, so, but you know what? Lo and behold, April 8th came. I didn't want to eat. I didn't give myself any kind of treat. I didn't go off the plan. I just was really, really helpful. And I also became in a mindset that this was not a plan or a diet that has a beginning and ending and then you celebrate and then you gain back whatever, you know, but it's a lifestyle. It's a way of living. But and what were the changes you saw that made you stay on the plan? See, somebody stays yeah. on a plan because it made them feel better. Otherwise, yeah. you can't keep them on a plan. I, I, 
you know, first of all, our food was kind of honestly pretty horrible when we first started. I can't yeah, believe, that's true. like, yeah. I'm just not the cook I am now. <laughs> yes. Like, I can't believe I even ate some of the stuff I ate. <laughs> um, but, um, you know, my husband trial and error, we, we did it because we had always had this attitude of uh, cooking together when he would come home, I would get the dinner started and we'd always do it together because we wanted our kids to see we had two boys, we have two boys and a girl, we wanted them to see, like I said to my boys, I never want you to get married because you don't know how to cook. Like that's not a good enough reason. And yeah. my daughter, I don't want you to marry someone because you don't know how to cook like, yeah. you know, um, so they saw the model of both of us in the kitchen, but we slowly figured out our way and found recipes we liked. But I just felt overall more more energy. Mm -hmm. um, I noticed like within 15 months, I got my sight fully back. Um, because you stopped so the medicine or? I, I No, I didn't stop the medicine. In fact, that took another year for me to get off all my medicine uh, or so, I think it was. Mm. Um, so but I got my sight was... back after 15 months, but I was noticing some changes. Right. Because right. I noticed some changes. And you know what? I just saw it April 8th. I thought, I still need more time to see how this is going. Like, I am yeah, yeah. better. I was losing some weight. I I felt I couldn't exercise. It almost took me a year after starting it before I had the energy. Because my energy level, just to give you an example, was when I started the diet, I could only stand one to two minutes at the island. That was it. Mm. I was so weak. I was fainting quite a bit because um, I was lightheaded. Like, my blood pressure would be... Uh, maybe 80 over 50, you know, I was, so I would have to, we had a bench between our kind of kitchen dining room to get to, mm -hmm. to, to the other rooms. Um, so I would sit at the dining room table and cut all the vegetables up. And the thing is, the only thing I had trouble cutting was mushrooms. And I would mm -hmm. have honestly band-aids on my fingers. I didn't know because I was non-sighted. I had no idea that there was such a thing as sliced mushrooms because before I was, uh, you know, when I was sighted, they didn't have anything like that. So it was like, you know, and I thought, oh my God, this is like a miracle. I don't have to cut myself anymore. Uh, but I persevered through and I found like, oh, I could start standing at the island just even a little bit longer. Oh, I could do, do this. You know, I could walk around the house without feeling as lightheaded. Um, that kind of thing. I just noticed really tiny little changes at first, but it was enough for me to say, why quit now? Why not keep going? And just like curiosity, I'm a very curious person and um, I love learning. So it's like, I should learn some more and see what happens with this. And mm -hmm. that's what propelled me to continue going. And then when I got my vision back after 15 months, it was like miraculous. Like, before, I couldn't even see my teeth to brush them in the vanity mirror. That's how close. I just see a big black hole. And I'd be like, wow. you know, you know, yeah. as if I was on dr drugs or something because I couldn't see it. So basically, even though you thought your eyesight was going off because of the medication, it was more than one reason why you were not yes. having your sight. Yeah. 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 And my diabetes improved incredibly. Mm -hmm. um, so I got that reduced. Um, I was something like 15.1 A1C when I was Ooh, diagnosed. That and, is like a death bell. <laughs> yeah. And, and within months I was down to seven, ah. just as an example. 
Right, right, right. Yeah. And then when I found and uh, and because I looked at Neil Bernard's work first for PCRM to reverse diabetes, but I really found it was a combination of Esselstyn and McDougal that really won me over. Mm-hmm. Uh, McDougal starch based, and then Esselstyn, he really promotes the greens. And then when we did our international study, um, my husband, Dr. Andrew McGoy Smith, he has a a PhD in theoretical chemistry and does environmental risk analysis and safety. He, he discovered that arugula is the very number one for nitric oxide on the nitric oxide index. Mm -hmm. And so that, you know, I make sure I have arugula, you know, several times a day. And uh, because Esselstyn will suggest breakfast, lunch, dinner, and in between snacks and even at bedtime. Right. Right. Yeah. Yeah. And that I find the emphasis on greens. McDougal doesn't, he, he includes greens, but he doesn't emphasize them. But for me, that was a life, that was a game changer. It was life-saving. Right. And yeah. uh, there is no, um, any food that has starch in it is more, people tend to be more compliant. Yes. Um, very rarely. Well, it feeds our yeah. brain. I think yeah. people forget, like when we, people get onto the keto diet, I can see the, you know, First of all, there's a certain status to the keto diet because grocery stores love you because you're walking out of their showcase with the Mercedes or the, the you know, <laughs> the Jaguar because yeah. you're getting the filet mignon, you're getting all of this stuff, yeah. the bacon, all these different things. So, you know, hey, there's a certain status to that. And it seems easy because guess what? You can go again, if we look at our orbit, we can go anywhere to get meat yeah, and we can go anywhere to get some vegetables. Now they don't eat starches. So I equate it. I explain to people that let's say, you know, if you're a driver and you're on the highway and you want to pass a car, you notice how you have to rev up your engine. You put on your signal light, you really rev it, mm-hmm. kind of gun it. And then you pass them and go back mm-hmm. safely in the lane again. Well, the problem with the keto diet is you're, you're, you're doing the signal and then you're gunning it, but you continue gunning it all the way to your destination. Mm-hmm. And that's really hard on your body. And what it doesn't take into consideration mm-hmm. is what happens with your liver, your kidneys, and your heart right. when you eat like this. Yeah. And so it's, it's something it's kind of like, and, and ironically, they sometimes call it the caveman diet. And they'll say, well, cavemen did this. And, a, and then John McDougall has a very good analogy. He says, just open your, your mouth and put your finger along your molars. That's grinding. Like, you know, if you've ever seen flour ground, that's exactly what we have. And Neanderthal was found to have grains all in their teeth and stuff. Right. Um, when they did sort of the autopsy of discovery a years, you know, hundreds of years later. So there's a lot of misnomer out there. And we do need to sometimes go into ketosis if, for example, there's no food around. And so we will feed off the fat of our, our body. However, to stay in that can do a lot of damage. Mm-hmm. It's stress. And it's basically stress to the body. Yeah. And so, you know, and, and so now some kidney specialists are coming out and saying, hey, I've got really young people who are now having problems with their kidneys right. as a result. Yeah. That's true. Uh, heart disease and kidney disease. In fact, if you, there is a huge company that does ketogenic for diabetics particularly, and they want you to have an EKG before you yeah. join their program yeah. for a good reason. 
right? Yeah. Because it's a therapeutic diet for somebody who is really struggling to lose weight. But well, the like, irony is when they have compared, this yeah. is the thing that got to me when they paired the keto diet with mm -hmm. the whole plant based diet, it was only a matter of a few pounds. That was right. it. Like the that keto diet lost a few more pounds than the whole plant-based diet. But again, you're not having the same risk to your heart, your kidneys, or your lung, your, your liver. So you kind of go, which one do I want to, for right. a few pounds, more which sustainability one do I too. Yes, and exactly. The ketogenic diet slowly evolves into a high protein diet. Most people yes. start off with ketogenic and they go into the high protein and the protein, as we all know, in, eventually gets converted to glucose. A lot of people yeah. don't realize that. So it actually makes your diabetes worse over a period of time. Yeah. And yet every diabetic is actually on a high protein diet. And then we're not only talking, we're not talking about even T. Colin Campbell's work where if you have higher range from he's suggesting between seven and 8% is all we need for protein, right. you know, up to 10 baby percent. Um, you know, otherwise we're turning on and off it, Like he can, he's been able to demonstrate, you can turn on and off cancer growing cells. So we all have cancer seedlings in us. It's just whether do we want to put um, light and water on them, you know, yeah. and we can do that by having too much protein. And right. so it, you know, so there's the other risk. And I know for myself, that was the other thing is that if I was going to be a lung, like a transplant candidate, I really had to, you know, they do about a, a, almost a year's work of working you up to make sure because mm -hmm. they don't want to give you a transplant if let's say you've got cancer. So I realized like, hey, this is my best odds to be going in there for a transplant as healthy as possible too. So I felt that that was another motivator. Like I have, you know, I have lots to gain by way of possibility and very nothing to lose. So because and I'm not a gambler, so I want a sure thing. And so, you know, that's what also became part of my motivation. But the other thing I realized is having worked with people in the drug addiction field is and even in couple work or whatever, you know what, every time we question something, it's an opportunity also to recommit. So, you know, if people get new knowledge, like, okay, you're here, new knowledge. Is this, uh, is this making me more committed to what I want to do and where I want to go and what matters to me and who's important to me? Because, for example, my kids were the most important to me and my, and my husband. What mattered to me is setting a role uh, model example of trying to figure out a way to contribute to the world. So I had to, I always put it through that lens um, to see, are these in service of who's important to me and what matters to me? That was the ultimate. But it doesn't mean that you commit once and you never commit again. Yeah, yeah. In fact, you know, the more times you end up recommitting, it's often the stronger that you end up, your success becomes. Correct. And knowledge makes you do make those iterations yes. and different commitments so yes. that you can move forward. Yeah. And so a year into this, a year and a half into this, uh, what were the changing moments? I know, I know you said you have had five of the right-sided cardiac. I've had uh, six heart, six. right heart casts. Right yes. heart casts. It's basically, initial... they put a catheter, a catheter into the yeah. pulmonary vessel to measure the You're pressure. awake 
in an operating room yeah. and uh, it's not an easy thing to go through because they have to go through your carotid artery right. and they s- take a wire and put it through your heart chambers into your lungs and you're mm-hmm. awake through this. So I used to have to really give my be in a real meditative state because I didn't want to have the drugs to put me in la la land because I just, yeah, yeah, that sort of twilight zone because I didn't want to have any more stuff in my body if I Mm -hmm. could. And Mm -hmm. so I literally would go say, God surround me with angels so I can just get through this because you had to stand, sit, lay very still as well. Mm -hmm. And, uh, and it felt like hours that you were under like that, like in that position. Um, Yeah. So no, but they found that there was improvement. Uh, Again, he was not willing to share the numbers. And, you know, I just was like, you know, but I could see the improvement because my blood sugars were now like my A1C was like 5.6 or six, you know, um, I was feeling so much better. I lost, ended up losing about 110 pounds and I've kept it off. Um, I didn't lose it all in just 15 months, but over, you know, I ended up um, being able to get off my, in 2013, they took me off all my pH drugs, which was very scary. Uh, but I did it uh, because what had happened was I had been in hospital uh, with a, a problem. I had been given an antibiotic and it turned out I was severely allergic and it affected my kidney functioning. Mm-hmm. And so they said, I, had a, I have a fantastic nephrologist. And he said, let's really think outside the box. So, um, you know, and my, the kidneys were, my kidneys were very extremely damaged from the, the drugs as well. Mm-hmm. Uh, there was drugs I should not have been on. Um, I did find out later, in fact, the first stage drug is actually, and people would appreciate this, it's a vasodilator and it's also used for people who have sexual dysfunction, mm-hmm. Viagra. Yes, and so that wonderful. they felt contributed, they found out if you're diabetic and you're on Viagra, it's likely that you will end up having blindness. Mm. Over yeah. time, they've done studies. And so I should probably have never been on that drug first, but that's stage one drug. And they put everybody on a stage one drug until mm-hmm. they have to up it. But I was probably dying. I was at a stage three out of four. And now I have reduced it to a stage one, my disease, which is unheard of. Yeah. But here's the, here's the kicker. And this is why people don't hear about this stuff is not, I had five specialists or had five specialists. I've gotten, been able to get rid of a few um, in my life. And not one of them has ever said to me, would you be willing to share your story just yeah. to let other patients know about it? Or would you be willing to talk to some of the docs about it? Yep. Never, ever. Because there is no double blind randomized controlled trial on Kate. Yeah. <laughs> that's basically and, it. And that's the study. sad part is yeah. that, you know, and I think Michael Greger of nutritionfacts.org says, you know, the research might be there, but it can take up to 75 years before it's applied. Yeah. So, so like we they, have information. What you're giving right now yeah. is information. You're also giving, you're opening another, for people who think there's nothing I can do about my diabetes, nothing I can do about my idiopathic pulmonary hypertension, I am just slated to die. You're giving them a window that they can actually look into and see. This is a possibility for them. Yeah. Are you willing to go down this path? Yeah. And there's no guarantee, but I can say you're not going to be harmed by it. 
You're not suddenly going to get sicker because you've done this. And I have to say that since my story's come out, it's come out on Forks Over Knives, uh, John McDougall's uh, McDougaller success stories. I have been contacted from people like in all parts of the world and they have reported back to me that they have improved yes. actually, yeah. you know, because I've given them my time and I've explained to them uh, kind of what to do and, and that kind of thing. And, and I've been told by them that like, gosh, I can't believe this, but it really helps a lot. Right. Like it's made a huge difference. Yeah. And a lot of this is not only just the removal of toxins, it's what you feed your cells. You want to look at every disease as something that's stemming from one cell. When one cell dysfunctions, the body is so smart, it'll kick that cell out. It actually kills and gets rid of the cell. But when multiple cells go wrong, in in a particular organ, Mm. you lose the function of that organ. When you talk about kidney disease, stage one, two, three, four, five, yes, one and two may not kill you, but it does kill the you, which Mm -hmm. is it changes who you are, because now it's filtering 10% to 30% less of the toxins. And it changes how and a lot of those symptoms are chalked up to, oh, I am aging, and you're not. Something is happening. There's been a change and alteration in all of the departments in your body. They're not functioning at their 100%. And so you're beginning to see the backlog. And that's why when you see a disease, it they call it the tip of the iceberg, right? When you're looking at the disease, that's why, because that iceberg was building all this while, and you had these occasional heartburn here and insomnia there, um, you know, an ache and pain here, a little weight gain, all of which you can ignore because it didn't put a stop to how you function in your day-to-day life. Mm-hmm. So your story really, I mean, you've you've put it, you've you've said it with such calmness and such it's like almost like you know things just happen it just fell on my lap and that's not true it's actually well if you saw my journey from the beginning there was a time when I had to tell my story so many times to so many health professionals and it's not a happy ending (laughs) Um, and to be honest that is traumatizing to yeah. have to keep doing that over and over again. Yeah. And I realized that I was starting to come to grips with acceptance. Acceptance doesn't mean I agree that I should have this. Yeah. Uh, I, I approve of, of me suffering this way. It's just I accept that this is some of the cards I've been dealt and I can have a chance to do something about some of it. You know, yeah. I yeah. may not be able to reverse some of the damage, um, you know, because of like I see, I say to people, like I was in a major head-on car collision. And so, yes, I can go to the car mechanic and get, you know, the fender fixed and everything, but it, it's not going to be the same car. Yep. And I recognize that and I accept that part, but it's a lot better than it going to the dump hill and I never get to drive again kind of thing. Yeah. Yeah. And I don't get to be with my kids and my, and again, who's important to me and what matters to me. Right. So I've had to accept that part of it. So I've gone from being um, breaking down and crying to having a shaky voice to being able to talk about it calmly because it's not also the other thing I've added is a lot more ends in my life. 
Mm-hmm. So yes, I am a patient that has pulmonary arterial hypertension, and I am this, and I am this, and I am this. So it doesn't become so front and center in my life in the same way. I do listen to my body. Um, I have what I call, uh, and our family knows it as p- p- pajama days, <laughs> where I'm just really tired, don't know how come, but then I listen to my body, and that's when I need to rest and not push myself. If it's a pajama day, they know it's not likely I'm going to make dinner, <laughs> yeah. um, you know, and, and I don't, and I don't use that freely. It's just, I really, okay, it's a pajama day today. And that's a right. code for our family. Like, you know, you got to back off. Mom isn't available the way she normally would. I see my disease as I'm living in this really nice home. I've made a home for myself. And guess what? I got this um, sometimes annoying disturbing neighbor next door that called pH, you know, (laughs) and, uh, or diabetes, someone might have diabetes or kidney disease, and they're living next door. And sometimes they play the music too loud. And sometimes they're smoking outside the window, or they're being, you know, Mm -hmm. noisy or whatever, but it doesn't, it's not enough for me to move. Because I know if I go into another neighborhood, there's likely there's could be somebody else like that. Yeah. Yeah. So I go, you know, I got to adjust, I got to close the windows, got to pull down the blinds, and, you know, put on my headphones if they're having a big party next door, and get through it, you know, yeah. And that's kind of how I've gone. So people, you know, yeah, I've come a long way. But part of it is to continue growing and nurturing myself, and saying, yeah, there are days that I feel really sad, like, I could say why me, but then to be honest with you, it's such a horrendous, horrible disease. I couldn't wish that on anybody. I couldn't yep. say like you take it over, like you know. Yeah. I just yeah. couldn't, and uh, so it's like okay, this is what I have to deal with. Now, what am I going to do about it? So, where are you now in terms of all of this? Um, well, I I started ForkSmart.org, mm-hmm. which uh, what we do is we do. Um, I, I send out a newsletter every month. Uh, and, uh, what we also do is we do potlucks every month and we Mm -hmm. set them up just like John McDougall, Mm -hmm. that site just by calorie density and, uh, for a buffet, uh, we do special events for people to say like, cause people go, I can never eat out. It's the end of the world for me. And I totally get that. (laughs) So guess what? We talk to restaurants, we make sure it's oil free. And then we've also been able to start finding restaurants where, they might not specify they can be oil-free, but they can. Let's say uh, we went to like a noodle box one day Mm -hmm. and you can ask for, don't cook it in oil, just use water, please, Mm -hmm. and have it vegan. And they had different, they had brown rice, zucchini noodles or rice noodles, for example. Mm -hmm. So we want them to know, yes, you can still eat out. You can still socialize and not be, you know, too different or the freak in in the group kind of thing. Yes. So... Um, and then um, what I've started doing is psychological flexibility for being your best self. And so that made me lead to, and I put that website up, like Kate at TowardMoves.com. Mm-hmm. I've developed a dedicated website just to help people with the psychological support of not just a whole plant-based journey, but anytime they're facing problems, because that's going to throw you off track about whatever, whatever wellness goal you have, you know? Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Uh, whether it's wellness in relationships or, you know, wellness in, um, uh, you know, your health or, right. or when anything like that, mm-hmm. or your mental health, like, you know, so I because that's my real 
calling and training is to, I've been counseling people for over 25 years. So I really want it to be able to continue doing that. It's awesome. Really yeah. cool. So um, if there's anything like somebody listening to us who's got multiple medical issues, and I, mm-hmm. I get a lot of these calls, right? And yeah. they don't believe they can get better. They truly don't because they've heard it from so many. You said you had five oh, yeah. specialists. Every specialist yeah. will tell you how terrible this disease is. And like when the dietitian actually spoke the truth as she knew it, yes. that was a shock to you because that didn't cross your mind and there was no informed like um what do they call it um, in the physician patient relationship is uh need to know basis yes right? we give information on a need to know basis to the patient because we don't want to have this long lengthy conversations with our patient i've seen and you see you will see this with cancer patients I've seen cancer patients decline stage four and they're getting all this chemo, the radiation and everything. The person is dying from the treatment rather than from the disease, but no oncologist will sit down and say, I don't think we should be treating you. I think if there is anything that you want to enjoy in life, the last six months you want to take and go and enjoy. They will not say that mm-hmm. till they can't give any more chemo because everything that they give some other organ is shutting down, then they'll have that conversation and they just walk out, leaving the patient in limbo. It's like, we fought all this while for, you know, and you're sitting there and wondering what exactly happened here. So what would your message be to those patients or people who are listening and say, but all my doctors told me that nothing can be done about it. Well, I would say, first of all, your concept of the need to know is really from the doctor's perspective and not the patient's. And that's part of like, often communication between a doctor and a patient is not very good in the first place. Um, The other thing I would say is that, yes, you have heard all these messages. It's not your fault if you believe anything different. And in fact, this is when you have an opportunity who, who do you want to, have to be in control of your health? And you have the most power and control, bottom line. Because a doctor, for example, simple antibiotic can give that to you. And if you choose not to take it, you know, you, you know the doctor's dependent on you complying yeah. uh, to help make progress. Yeah. However, you still have a choice. And I think people forget, even when you feel like you're in a corner, I'll say to my patients or clients, you know, you maybe think, okay, you're in a corner and you're facing the corner. Just turn around. You're still in the same corner, but now you have all of this to see. Right. All of these possibilities, you're still in the same corner. And so now it's up to you uh, as you get this information. And like, you know, um, is there anything that could cause you not to do it? You know, is there anything getting in the way, any obstacle? Now, our mind often gets us in the way because our yep. mind will continue sending these <laughs> messages over and over and over again. It not, it's not going to work and everything. And our mind's just trying to protect us. Our mind doesn't want us to get hurt again, disappointed again, fail again. However, sometimes we have to say to our mind, hey, mind, I'll take over now. I'm going to try this. I'm going to be a researcher. Because being a researcher is not a full commitment. It's like, hey, let me try this and see what happens. But given enough time so that you can really make the adjustment because it is a big adjustment. And to pretend that it isn't is unfair to you 
because then mm-hmm. you'll think, what's yeah. wrong with me? What, why, why isn't this working for me? Well, yeah. take, take several months and recognize that you're, you're going to fumble and fall and detour yourself off. And you'll go, oh, wow, there's a veggie burger here. But maybe it's so high in fat that it undoes what the value of it is. Right. Until you find some of your favorite recipes. And one of the things I'd say is think, write down a whole list. Because in a two-week period, we only eat about seven different things. If you were to eat a chicken eater, you'd eat chicken seven different ways. You'd have chicken salad, chicken parmesan, you know, whatever, a yep. breast of chicken. So write down a list of the foods you really like best. And then literally Google. Don't bother buying a cookbook or anything like that. But if you want, just just Google and see a, and write in whole plant-based. And note that if they have oil or not, and then see what's the equivalent to it. It's not going to be perfect. It's not going to be. But one of the, the cookbooks I will say, I was just looking for it here and it's not right here, is one cookbook I think is pretty good because it's grocery store books. You don't have to go to a special health food store for hardly anything. Uh, and it's Prevent and Reverse Heart Disease by Anne Crowell Esselstyn and Jane Esselstyn. That's a really basic kind of North American fare it's tasty. Uh, I didn't find it had to be adjusted for seasonings and stuff like that. And if they want to look for some recipes I've done right away, you can look on phacanada.com and take a look there. Um, And they're under resources and it's low sodium recipes. Um, And so, because McDougall, for example, instead of 2,500 milligrams that the Heart Disease Foundation suggests, he suggests 1,200 milligrams a day. So I've even made potato chips in the microwave. So you can, and they're not hard to make, honestly. Yes, you're right. They're really easy. And so it's just a matter of if you find sort of seven recipes that you really like, you'll find, and then you'll swamp them out. You'll see something more interesting or whatever. Um, but you'll try those. Like I'm just making up this turkey burger recipe now, just experimenting with it. Um, But, and it has really great flavorings in it and everything. So it's just a matter of giving yourself that permission to fumble and fail and get back up, you know, and say that's part of it. And not trying to, you know, having someone convince or correct you doesn't work. We just want to, hey, validate, you know, you're going through a rough time now and it doesn't always have to be rough. Like you can start feeding yourself something that can be helpful to you and take it on as an experiment. Absolutely. So uh, is there something that you wish I had asked, but I did not? <laughs> you sound exactly like I do in counseling sessions because <laughs> uh, um, I can't think of really anything except I would say is that people we really are tempted and our world sells us on quick fixes and this is not a quick fix and so I just want to caution people because it would be so easy just to take a pill and so easy to do this or that but if you think about it in terms of relationships would a quick fix be enough just to talk to to a family member for one minute or would you rather sit down for 15 minutes and really talk to them and listen to them and have them look in your eyes and you look in their eyes 
and you remember, think about what really counts in your life. It's those kind of memories that have some lasting. They're not usually one minute memories. Those are usually one minute regrets that we have, but those, what really counts is the time and investment we put into something. And this is, I will say that to me, I knew I could not ever give my kids sort of an inheritance. I'm not going to have much money at the end of my life if I have any. And I could give them a legacy of health. And to me, that is priceless for them to realize they don't have to suffer with high cholesterol or blood pressure or heart disease or become diabetic like that and, and perhaps not be able to get cancer. You know, there's no guarantees in life for sure, but to give them a legacy that sets them up for better health is to me so priceless. Absolutely. So. And also for them not to be sandwiched between their lives and your disease. That's yes. also something that I see as a physician where yeah. children are have the guilt of not being able to take care of parents because their parents have declined due to poor health a lot, 80% of which is lifestyle induced, not yeah. anybody's fault, but that's the culture we live in. Well, I know that I was doing a pretty good job because when um, I was blind and everything, I was going to see a counselor at CNIB uh, to get some support. And I told her how one of my sons told me to F off. And we both realized that that was a really good sign that he wasn't treating me like a basket case and he didn't have to tiptoe around me like eggshells. And he didn't have to, you know, he could just get mad at me because he was mad. And yeah. I realized that nobody has the corner on suffering. That's one thing I wanted my kids to know is I know if they're having a bad day, that's suffering for them. Yep. My disease might be suffering that I'm facing death, but their suffering is just as as valid and important to, yep. to be able to honor. So, you know, we're all, we all have different kinds of sufferings. Life isn't about the absence of problems. Life is about having problems and getting through them. Yep, that is true. Very true. That is awesome. This was like an awesome conversation, Kate. Thank you. I will put all of those contact information in okay. the show notes of this. And uh, if anyone uh, wants to get a hold of you, what is the easiest way? Um, they can do it at kate at .com. Um, They're welcome. Also, if you go to my site, towardmoves.com, you'll see there's my phone numbers there and everything. So I'm happy if people want to message me or text me or phone me. Awesome. Thank you so much. You're Appreciate very welcome. Your, uh, you know, uh, your willingness to talk about this. I know you've said the story a thousand times, but I, I really felt the audience that listens to our podcast would really benefit from this information. Well, I appreciate being able to be with you today. And I wish everyone in the audience the best of health and to continue um, going on their journey. And it's a, a really marvelous adventure to be on. Thank you so much. Thank you.